Our study is in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7. The first seven chapters are one unit about exhortation to ministry. Then in chapter 8 and 9, which we'll begin in our next time, deals with exhortation about money. And then finally, exhortation about motives in chapters 10 through 13. So we're right at the tail end of it. But it's been an interesting section here. Interesting for a number of reasons. In the first letter that he wrote to Corinthians, the Corinthian church, to Corinth, in the first letter he dealt with the problems that were in the church. Uh, the tone of the letter was very aggressive and confrontive. He spoke about drunkenness at the communion table, incest in the membership that was not dealt with, divisions among people about what speakers they liked or didn't like, talked about their carnality, and the attitudes were terrible in that church. The particular problem was this man who was in the church uh, had committed incest. He had his father's wife. And Paul, in no uncertain terms, blasted away. Now, between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the man got right with the Lord. And early on in 2nd Corinthians, we learned that we need to show comfort and encouragement to someone who truly repented. But one of the interesting things was that Paul sent them a letter which we don't have, which he refers to in our passage. He sent them a letter that was something he regretted at the first, because he didn't want to get into this again. But he was going to talk to them about repentance and what it really is. Titus, who was one of his associates, was sent to Corinth to check up on them. And what Titus saw was wonderful. The people had repented. There was a new spirit in the church. And what a blessing it was to the Apostle Paul's heart. But in this section of chapter 7, you have the most important teaching in the entire Bible on repentance. What is repentance? How does a person get right with God when you've blown it bad? How do you get straightened out in your life? And there is the most amazing analysis of repentance right here in our chapter, and it's the heart and soul of what we mean by godly sorrow. So follow along, please, in your Bibles. I'm going to begin reading at verse uh, number 8, though we ended with that last time, but it's important to see it in its context. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7 And we're beginning at verse 8 and reading down to the end of the chapter. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle or letter hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you! Yea, what clearing of yourselves! Yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done this wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed, but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. 
And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Will you join me, please, in prayer? Father, we know that there is a struggle in every heart to repent before you. There's an enemy of our souls, the devil himself, and all the demons of hell that want to keep us from repenting and getting right with God. And we remember that Jesus and his disciples preached that we are to repent and believe the gospel. That the very first thing that we are to do in our relationship with God is to repent. We remember that all the Hebrew prophets called on Israel to repent, to turn from sin and turn to God. We remember that Paul said to the church at Thessalonica that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Lord, I pray you'd open up our hearts and minds to the meaning and desperate need of repentance in our midst. And may there be deliverance tonight in many hearts as we find out what it really is to repent of our sin and to get right with the Lord. Thank you for what you're going to do in the wonderful name of our Messiah, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, if you've been with us for our study of Second Corinthians chapter 7, uh, let me just quickly remind you of the outline because it's connected to tonight. We started with an exhortation that was in verse 1 that said, Having these promise, let's cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. So that's where it started. Then there's an example of his life that should motivate them to open their hearts and not be afraid and to be transparent. And that's found in verse 2. Then in verses 3 and 4, there's the expression of love and joy in spite of the problems that were in their lives. And then in verses 5 to 7, there's an explanation of how he was encouraged personally upon hearing of how they had responded to his exhortation. Now, beginning at verse 8, which we ended with last time, and going down to verse 12, we have a fifth matter, if you're outlining with us in chapter 7, and that's the effect of his letter upon them. The effect of his letter upon them. He wrote about what was wrong and did it in a different style than 1 Corinthians. It was loving, but it was still an exhortation. It's important that we learn how to confront people. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, you who are spiritual, restore the brother who has fallen in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't believe many of us are helped by legalistic, pharisaical, judgmental attitudes by anyone. And often that's the response people give to those who are struggling with sinful habits in their life. They want to get victory. They love the Lord and they're pained in it, and they want to get victory. And we need compassion, love, mercy, understanding, all the qualities of our Savior if we're going to help somebody get on their feet again. That's very important. And you can see the attitudes in Paul mentioning the effect of his letter upon them. And I'll list these things. First of all, real quickly, verse 8. He regretted, I mentioned this last time as we ended, he regretted at first what the effect might be. But when he saw how they reacted to it, he said, well, obviously it was of the Lord. And that's the point of what he said in verse 8. The second thing, he not only regretted at first the way he wrote to them, and it was much more loving than the first letter. But the second thing I notice in verse 9 is he rejoiced at how they responded. And so often when people do get right with the Lord, they're left somewhere in the desert and no one cares about them. And I think that we need to rejoice and be excited for the fact that people have gotten right with the Lord. And then third, in verse 10, he re-emphasized the importance of true repentance. He said, Godly sorrow works, produces, or brings repentance to salvation. So folks, we're not only talking 
about believers who are struggling with sin, who need to repent. But we're also saying that repentance, what it really is, is the key to becoming a true child of God and receiving salvation from the Lord. One writer says it is the most misunderstood doctrine of salvation. And that's repentance. You rarely hear preachers say that. It is correct to tell them to accept Christ, receive Him, believe on the Lord, trust in Him. But sometimes we ignore what precedes the faith that a person expresses in the Lord. And sometimes the barrier to believing is in fact the hard heart that refuses to repent. Either of its arrogance or its unbelief. For the Bible tells us that unbelief itself produces a hard heart. And it's very important to understand repentance is critical to becoming a true believer. And it might explain why a lot of people, Jesus said in the last days, give outward allegiance to the Lord and call Him Lord, but in fact are workers of iniquity and have never been born again. So it may help us to understand they may never have repented. And since the Bible tells us that we must repent, Peter preached it on the first day the church was born. Repent. We read in chapter 3 of Acts, he's preached it again to the multitudes and said, Repent. We know John the Baptist told the children of Israel to repent and prepare for the coming of the kingdom of, of heaven. And when John was killed, it says that Jesus took up his ministry and said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We cannot escape the Bible evidence that we are to repent That's what the Bible says. If you go to the Catholic Bible, I'm not here to rag on Catholics, I'm here to tell you the truth. In the Douay version, they translate it very poorly. When you take the word for repentance in Greek, which I'll explain in a moment, and put it into Latin, it is the Greek, uh, the Latin word, panaro. That was simply transliterated or said into English as do penance. And so the whole Catholic doctrine of repentance was built on the things that I do to prove that I am worthy of God's favor and God's grace. That is not what repentance is in the Bible. And we're going to see that very clearly in just a moment. So he says, godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation not to be repented of. If it's real, it doesn't change. But the sorrow of the world, and don't think they don't have sorrow. They do. Unbelievers have sorrow. For one thing, people are sorry when they get caught. Amen? They're very sorry they got caught. And that may be the only sorrow they have. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry for what they've done. They're sorry for how they hurt somebody. And we interpret that as meaning true godly sorrow. No, it's not. We need to know what real repentance is all about. Which brings me to the fourth thing in verse 11 of the effect of his letter upon them. And that is he recalled the essential characteristics of true repentance, which he now saw in them. And verse 11 gives us an analysis of repentance that is nowhere else found in the Bible. There are seven essentials. Before I tell you that, a little study of the words would be important. In the Old Testament, the words for repentance basically are two Hebrew words. One's called nakam. It's a very common word. appears about 40 times in the Bible. And it usually refers to God, not to us. It means to lament or to grieve. You ever read in your old King James Bible, especially at the first civilization that was destroyed by the flood, when God saw the wickedness of man on the earth, so on and so forth, it said it repented him. That's the word. Lamenting and grieving over the tragedy in people's life. Aren't you glad you have a God that cares like that? Amen? But the interesting word that we want to look at is the word shuva. Shuva. Uh, shuva is translated three times as repent, but 185 times as turn. 369 times as turn again. And it is the number one message of all the Hebrew prophets. If anybody says to you, repentance is not a major subject in the Bible, they haven't read the Bible. It is a major subject. It is the one thing 
that the prophets cried out to God's people and said, you need to repent. You need to turn. When we come to the New Testament, there are two words, but very different words. Translated repent. We have a Greek word, metamelomai. Now you hear some of that in our medical terms, melanoma, so forth. But metamelomai is used eight times, and it's a regret, it's a sorrow, but it's feeling sorrow that you got caught or that uh, you just wish it didn't happen, etc. And a form of that word does appear in our text, but not dealing with godly sorrow, but the sorrow of the world. As a matter of fact, that's a very interesting thing as it relates to its usage in the Bible. Do you remember reading that Judas repented? It's this word. It was not true godly repentance. He felt sorry for what he had done in betraying the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver, and he went out and wept and hung himself. And the word used for Judas repented is metamelomai. It is not the normal word for godly repentance. But when we come to the word for repentance, it's in the New Testament, it's meta. Noeo. The little meta is a preposition, which means after, um, and uh, with noeo, noas is mind, noeo is to think. It's primarily uh, to think after in a different way, or we would say a change of mind. And that leads to a change of conduct. And that word in its various forms appears 104 times in the Bible, over 500, almost 600 times in the Old Testament, over 100 times in the New Testament, 700 times God tells us to repent. You would think we would get the message. And yet there are many people who say, well, that's what they did in the Old Testament. We don't have to do that. Well, we do have to do that. Here's some few basic facts you can jot down before I tell you about these seven essentials in verse 11. Here's some basic facts about repentance. Number one, it is primarily a change of mind. Have you ever run into somebody who is really brokenhearted, as it appears, over what they have done, but their minds are never changed about what they've done? They're just sorry it happened. It's very interesting. When you have a change of mind, according to the Bible, it's a change of mind about sin. And all the stuff that's carnal and wicked and not of God. Hebrews 6.1 uses it when it says repentance from dead works. The fact of the matter is if you really repent, you have a different mind about sin. You're not justifying and defending it and sweeping it under the rug. You're recognizing how awful is our sin and rebellion towards God. But it's also not only a change of mind about sin, and it's a change of mind about God. It's turning towards God. Acts 20, verse 21, speaks about repentance toward or unto God. Another interesting thing about repentance, it is not merely feeling sorry that you sinned or got caught. By the way, in addition to Judas, we have another example of this false kind of repentance this false kind of tears. And it was in the life of Esau in Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. And it said, Esau, though he sought it with tears, found no place of repentance. He never changed. Oh, he was sorry for what happened and the consequences, but he never changed. So that's one of the things we understand. Another interesting thing is that it is described as a gift of God in the Bible. Acts 5, 31, Acts 11, verse 18, that repentance is a gift of God. It's evidence that God really has worked in your heart. And let me put it another way. When there is no repentance, we have clear reminders of the possibility there's no real conversion happening. Is everybody hearing me? Very important. What it is, according to Paul, is godly sorrow. According to verse 11. Sorrow that God 
would bring in our hearts and brings a change of mind and of conduct. Now, what are these seven characteristics? Look at verse uh, 11 of chapter 7, and we're going to list each one of them. I'm not trying to bore you. As a matter of fact, if you are bored, that, that could be serious under this discussion. Number one, if you really repent, he said, what carefulness was worked in you. Carefulness. The Greek word, you know it. We've got it on our clothing a lot. Ever worn any Speedo shirts or athletic equipment? It's spude, and it's basically talking about speed, but not simply running a race. It's used 14 times in the Bible. What it refers to is the eagerness with which a person responds when confronted. Isn't that interesting? If you really repent, what carefulness has worked in you means you are quick to deal with it when confronted with it. Number two, the second essential, I'll tie all this together at the end. Let's just walk through it, first of all. The second thing he said, what clearing of yourselves. The Greek word is our English word apology. Apologia, said into English, apology. It refers to a defense, an apology. An apology that's rooted in the desire to be forgiven for what you have done. It's used eight times in the Bible. Very common. So if you really repent, there's a sincere effort to give a defense, an apology for what you have done. Number three is the word, what indignation. This word's only here in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere else, and I don't know any history behind it. It's a word, it's agonanactasis, a long word. But I have read other men who have studied it, and they say that it refers to pain that a person feels because of what they have done or caused. What indignation, what pain is in the heart when you realize what you've done, either against God or against others. Number four is the common word fear. What fear? Greek phobos. We talk about phobias. People have these fears and anxieties. Well, here's one we should all have. It always refers to an attitude toward God. And in particular, it's a fear of the consequences. And so many times when we've done something we shouldn't, we want to repent of it, there's no fear of the consequences. Instead, we feel we can get out of it. Number five, he says, what vehement desire. Vehement desire. The Greek word, epipothesis, it's used four times. Every last one of them are here in our text, in our passage. It refers to a conviction that the Holy Spirit puts on your heart that produces a strong desire to respond, to do something about it. When you see somebody not wanting to do anything about their sin, it goes on and on and on, and year after year, and nothing happens, they're giving evidence that no real repentance has happened, even though they may cry a lot. Wow. Number six is the word zeal. Another common word, zealous in Greek. Zeal refers to the effort and desire to stop the sinful behavior and live a godly life. You have that kind of zeal. You're very zealous to stop the sinful behavior and live a godly life. Number seven is the word revenge. And this needs a little study. Ek dikases. Dikases from dikaao means righteous. Ek means out of. It's used nine times. It also translates judgment. And out of that comes a judgment, in this case, of yourself. It is referring to judgment as well as defense, but it's a willing acceptance of the judgment of God and the consequences. The consequences might be disgrace, shame, humiliation, loss, you name it, and worse. And there's never an effort in this word to justify, defend, or excuse your sin. It's a very important word. Revenge is talking about not you taking revenge, but it's talking about you accepting the judgment of God for what you have done. This is the attitude in the heart of the believing sinner who recognizes he deserves hell and not heaven. All the pride and arrogance of people who said, I'm not that bad, I'm better than most. 
That is rebellion against God, whether we like it or not. It's what God says. All seven of these things are the essential characteristics describing repentance. Let me summarize them. If you have a pencil and paper, you might want to write it down. Here's the summary of repentance. Seven things put in a different fashion based on those words that I hope will be helpful to you. Number one, you respond as soon as possible to the situation. That means the Spirit is working true repentance in your heart. You respond as soon as possible to the situation. That's the point of what carefulness, the speed and eagerness with which you want to deal with it. Number two, you react with a sincere apology and seek forgiveness. If you're coming to God, you are apologizing. And listen to this, folks. That apology, apologeo, happens to be a part of the word we translate confession of sin. We don't hide our sin. We agree with God about our sin. We say the same thing as God says. And it's the same word. It's almost synonymous. It's like a synonym. When we make an apology and seek the forgiveness of the Lord, we are confessing our sins. So the point is, you react with a sincere apology and seek forgiveness. Thank the Lord He is quick to forgive and ready to forgive, according to Psalm 86, verse 5. Amen? And hopefully other people respond the same way. They don't always. Number three, the third thing about true repentance is you realize the pain you have caused to others. You know, in reference to God, I believe we treat this lightly because we can't see Him. He's invisible. Yet we read all about Him and we find out that our sin, our pride, our arrogance actually hurts the heart of God. He is grieved. In the New Testament it says that the bad language that comes out of our mouths grieves the Holy Spirit whereby we're sealed in the day of redemption. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And we're to let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking with all malice be put away from you and instead be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's interesting. You realize the pain that you cause. The fourth thing is that you remember the consequences of continuing in this sin. There are consequences to pay. As a matter of fact, if you don't truly repent in turning to the Lord for salvation, the consequence is hell. It's very severe. The consequences of not dealing with your sin as a believer are more trouble, more bitterness, a life that's just shameful, disgraceful, humiliating, and a tremendous loss of the blessing of God. Some of the most miserable people in the world are continuing to sin. Perhaps their friends on the outside don't know what's going on. In the privateness of their own life, they're doing things that are displeasing to God. They're hiding. Like the gentleman who wrote me this week on the Internet. He got caught with the pornography on the Internet. He just wanted to check it out. He said, initially I thought, well, I'll check it out to get my name off the list. But he never should have checked it out. The moment he checked it out, there were some uh, naked women there that he wanted to look at. Before long, it got worse and worse and worse. And he is in the deviation like you can't believe. And he says he's a Christian. He knows the Lord. He is miserable. And he feels trapped. And he's paying the price. When you repent of your sin, you remember the consequences of continuing it. It isn't surprising that we sin. But it's very surprising in the light of all God has said that we will continue in it in rebellion without any thought of getting right with the Lord. Number five, you recognize that this is a priority in your life. It's a priority. You don't put it off and say, well, in six months from now, I'll try to figure this out. When you truly repent, it's now a priority. I must get this resolved. Someone has said that a person who's trying to repent can drive you crazy. <laughs> I like that. That's the way it ought to be. 
They can drive you crazy because they want to get it straightened out. If they've offended you, they will do everything they can to apologize and seek your forgiveness. It's another problem, of course, as to whether we exercise the love of the Lord in forgiving. That's another problem. Some people say, well, he said it three times already. But you remember what Jesus taught us. If a man comes to you and says, I repent, and he says it seven times in a day, Jesus said you are to forgive him. (laughs) Well, you and I both know that if they did it seven times in a day, we'd be thinking, how can I really trust that this guy's really repenting? But remember also that in the Proverbs it speaks about righteous men who fall seven times in a day. So it's a little bit of arrogance on our part, is it not, to believe that we don't have the possibility of sinning again even though we've truly repented of it. Is everybody understanding me? You see, depravity is a tricky thing. And it will deceive you into thinking you're okay now because you went through all this. And the next day, you turn around, you're wound up with the pressure again. That's life. Because God wants you to depend upon His Holy Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the lust of the flesh. Very, very interesting. And number six, you recognize, or you resolve rather, you resolve to settle the matter in whatever way is possible. You resolve to settle the matter in whatever way is possible. Make no mistake about it that a lot of us want to resolve the matter in the eyes of the person that we think we've offended. And there's little recognition of what God thinks. Watch out. There are some people that have a difficult time forgiving anyone. Maybe their past has kept them that way. And no matter what anybody does, it's very hard for them to forgive. And maybe they're judgmental as a personality. I don't know. But it makes it difficult for them, and you're going to run into that. But the real question is, do you want to resolve this before God? People talk about accountability. You know, we we all need to be accountable to each other, they say. But when I open my Bible and look at accountability, the matter of fearing, I notice the accountability is to God. Let's suppose that you and I set up a little group to keep us accountable. A guy says, you know, i got a drinking problem. Could you all just meet with me once a week and talk to me so that I won't drink? So I'm going to be accountable to you. Listen, if you know anything about drinking, you can get into a lot of trouble in between accountability meetings. (laughs) I see some of you have been there. So once again, we need to be clear, our accountability is to God. And then the seventh and final thing is that you restore whatever is possible to settle the matter and to accept the consequences, whatever they might be. Some things can be changed, some things cannot be changed. If you stole something, pay it back. Aren't you glad that God is so forgiving So loving, so merciful, so gracious that he says to you, oh, by the way, I like your attitude and I don't want anything from you. I want to give it all to you. And that again breaks the heart of a true repentant sinner. When you learn that God is not sitting in heaven with a baseball bat ready to club you for every false move. He is standing there with open arms, ready to put him around you and say, Welcome back to my heart. Welcome home. The Lord loves you. And a lot of us believe the devil's lie. And we're bouncing around and never getting freedom because we forget how loving is our Lord. Here is one to whom you come to repent, who loves you, even though he knows everything about you. You better not try to fool him or lie to him either. He already knows. How interesting to come to somebody like that. They know everything already. And the moment God sees that heart, why the psalmist told us this over and over again, like Psalm 34, the Lord is near to those that are brokenhearted. Or Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. 
he will never despise. So God reacts immediately when he sees the heart that has truly repented. And there is God with his open arms. He's the prodigal son's father, you know. And he didn't wait for the boy to crawl through the door and beg for forgiveness. He ran down the road and threw his arms around that stinking, filthy kid and said, this my son was lost, he's found. Let's make merry. My boy is back. Welcome home to the heart of the Father. So when I look at all of this, I see the critical nature of it. In seven steps, we have godly repentance described. And it's a good barometer used for your own heart, as well as when anyone talks about it, as to whether or not they just feel sorry, or whether they are sorrowing to changing their mind and conduct about sin and about God. Almost everything we could say about repentance could be summarized by look into the face of the Lord, please. A lot of us are all horizontal, trying to cover our bases and straighten out everything we possibly can. Well, i got bad news for you. A lot of things in life will never be straightened out again until we go home to be with the Lord. Believest thou this? There are things that are wrong in the life of people who are already dead, and you can't do anything about it anymore. One gal who was suffering so terribly in her life because of her dad's meanness to her, and her dad died. And it got worse, and the depression was in her heart. And one day I said to her, listen, you cannot do anything about it. He's dead. But you can certainly have a heart towards God that will please Him, and He will love you and forgive you. You don't need to go on like this. Sometimes people who are the victims of hurt suffer the most. You know that and I know that. Isn't it interesting, again, that God is always ready to forgive? He's waiting for you to talk to Him. It'd be wonderful if you don't even wait for me to finish the message. But just look at me like you are listening so I'll feel good about it. But right in your own heart, you can talk directly to God right now. Say, God, I'm really sorry. I've sinned against you. I've been stubborn. I've been rebellious. I think I'm better than other people. The pride, the arrogance. I put all kinds of objections up. And I, I've sinned terribly against you. And that can go on in your heart right now while we finish this message. And God loves you so much, He can touch you and wipe you as white as snow. Become a brand new creature in Him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It can happen. Come back to the outline now. There's a fifth thing about the effect of his letter upon them. It's found in verse 12. And that is he reminded them of his real reason in writing such a letter to them. I, I was really stunned by this verse at first, but the more I thought about it, the more true it is. Here's what Paul said to them. I didn't write this to you because of the guy that did it. Now, is that a valid reason? Sure it is. Did he confront the guy? Yes, he did. But he said, I, I didn't write this letter just so I could talk to the guy who did it. Oh, and by the way, I didn't write it either for the person who got offended. It's like he eliminated in one sweep all the reasons we would give as to why we wrote that letter, you know, to straighten this matter out. And Paul said, I didn't write that for any of those reasons. I wrote it for one reason, to let you know how much I love you. That I care about what happens to you. And that's why I wrote to you. And folks, we need more people in the body of Christ who truly care like that. And you know it and I know it. Now, if you've still been outlining in that chapter 7, there's a sixth and final thing in the last few verses. And that's the encouragement that Titus brought. Wow. Let's look at it again. Chapter 7, 2 Corinthians, beginning at verse 13. And here's what we read. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because 
his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you as truth in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. It really was true. And he saw the reaction. It was great. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you while he remembered the obedience of you all. You really repented. And how with fear and trembling you received him, not knowing how he would react. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. I see the work of the Lord in your hearts. Uh, My reaction to that little section? I don't know a pastor who would want to pastor the church at Corinth. I mean, you talk about problems. You can go back and study 1 Corinthians. You say, please, Lord, not that. I'm willing to serve you anywhere and everywhere, but don't send me to Corinth. Those people got real serious problems. And you know, sometimes you can see it in the heart of pastors. They shouldn't be like this. They should be good shepherds instead of foolish ones. But sometimes pastors believe the real problem are the people in the church. But the last time I heard this or understood this, sheep are rather dumb. I'm sorry, but dumb. And every pastor needs to remember he is one. He's a sheep too. Now, they're dumb. You know what else? They're dirty. When I was growing up and they had these little stories in the children's book, all the sheep had little white fluffy wool on them. Do you remember that? And I remember the first time in the late 60s I hit Israel and I saw what real sheep are like. Do you know also in addition to be dirty, I think dishwater color is about the best you can say for them. The second thing that I learned very quickly was they stink to high heavens. Have you ever really smelled a fluffy little sheep? They stink. And when I saw what they're really like, and I thought to myself, that's the church. A bunch of dumb people who are dirty most of the time and stink to high heavens. You know what else? They go off in all directions without you leading them. Every pastor goes to a seminar and conference, they say, now you need to learn how to lead the church. It's almost amusing when you go to the New Testament, because it says, all we, like sheep, have what? Followed the shepherd? No, gone astray. Every man to his own way. But thank God the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The fact is the sheep are dumb, they are dirty, they stink to high heavens, and they go off in all directions and don't follow the leadership of the, of the shepherd. Now that is the church of Jesus Christ from God's point of view. <laughs> and Jesus said, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me by still waters because he knows how easily disturbed I am. He restores my soul, which is needed about every hour of every day. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He'll never lead me to sin for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because thou art with me. Your rod, sometimes you've got to hit me with that thing. And your staff, why does it have a hook on it? To go around the neck of a sheep and pull them out of trouble. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thou anointest my head with oil. I don't deserve it. You tell me I'm so special. And I don't get it. My cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord, the stinking, dirty, dumb, wandering sheep. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen? And you know, I look at this, and this is the heart of a shepherd who's talking here. Well, if you want an outline, let me give you four quick points about the encouragement Titus brought to him. First, 
Titus received a real blessing from these dirty, dumb, difficult sheep. It says, verse 13, His Spirit was refreshed by you all. Isn't that beautiful? And it brought great joy to the heart of Paul as he saw that this people with all their problems, they had gotten right with the Lord and now they were a blessing to his mentor. <laughs> Paul was a mentor to this man Titus and trained him and, and, and sent him there and not knowing what was going to happen. And Titus comes back so refreshed because the attitude and the spirit of the people was a blessing to his heart, and Paul was just thrilled. The evidence of their repentance was there. And secondly, he not only received a great blessing from them, but he reinforced what Paul boasted about concerning their response to his letter. Verse 14, he said, And it's found the truth. Paul had no reason to be embarrassed about his comments to Titus, He said, you won't believe it, Titus. I'm sending you there. I want you to check up on it. But according to this letter, they've really repented. And third, I like this, verse 15. He responded with great affection for them. It says of Titus, his inward affection is more abundant toward you all. You know, when God touches a person's heart like this, it doesn't matter how dirty and dumb and awful and stinking the people are. When you see the wonderful grace and mercy of God and what He can do in all of our lives, why, it causes us to fall in love with each other again. By this will all men know that you're my disciples because you love one another. That's so important. God gave me a big lesson one day. I was working the parking lot patrol down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, watching that nobody stole any of the radios and stuff out of cars. And as I was walking down through all these cars, I was thinking, I don't really enjoy this. I was thinking that. All of a sudden, to my left, I caught the eye of a guy who was just a mess. His hair looked matted, with looked like it might have bugs in it. Uh, he was awful looking, stinking, smelling stuff. And he's cutting across through the cars. And I thought, aha, my first police duty. And I marched after that guy. I snuck by the cars. I'm going to catch this guy. And I got right in front of him. And he looked at me and says, Don't come near me. I said, Why is that? He said, I've got AIDS. And I just walked out of the hospital. And I wouldn't stay there. They told me not to leave. Really? He didn't even know it was a church parking lot he was walking through. I said, You got AIDS? He pulled up his shirt. I'd never seen that. Sores had eaten his whole body away. They were on his legs and arms. And he was in the final stages. He said, they told me I would die within a couple weeks. And I didn't want to die there. I kept getting closer. He said, don't get close. You're going to get a problem here. And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. And I looked at that boy through the first time, I think, in that situation with the eyes of the Lord, which I needed bad, badly. And I walked up that boy, and I could see all of your children also. Somebody's boy. And I walked up to him as he was telling me not to and not to and not to, and I put my arms around the boy. And I wouldn't let him go. And he just put his head on my shoulder and just started crying uncontrollably. I said, what would you say if I could tell you that by believing a special message that I would tell you, you could have everlasting life and you'd have a brand new body someday and that God would forgive you for everything you've done in life? He said, I'd give anything to have that. And that day we knelt down in the parking lot and he opened his heart and repented of his sin telling God how he had sinned against him when he knew better and the arrogance and pride that had come into him and now his life was being destroyed. And he opened his heart and he gave his heart to the Lord. That week that followed, he had the joy of the Lord like nobody I had ever seen. That first day, we went to the bathroom and cleaned him up, washed him down, got some clothes out of the clothes room for him. One week later, he died. 
went home to be with the Lord. You know, um, this passage reminds me that we need to have that kind of heart towards people because there go we all but for the grace of God. And we need to repent. We need to repent of our pride, our arrogance, our self-centeredness, self-righteousness. We need to repent. And Titus had his life changed by what he saw in these wicked, awful people who now had repented. And there was great affection in his heart, more abundant, the Bible said. The Greek word is our splagnoi, bowels, where you ache for somebody, you love them so much. That's what happened to him. And finally, in verse 16, Paul rejoiced that their repentance was real. There's nothing sweeter than to see real repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I know it's easy to think of the prodigal son, how he messed up his life, to think of some drunk drug addict somewhere that needs to hear this and completely miss the point that all of us need to repent. The self-righteous, the religiosity of our day, the thinking that we're better than some and not as bad as you have described. We need a change of mind about the terribleness of sin that sends a man to hell. We need to change our mind about God that He made us in His image and He knows what we need before we ask Him. And we need to get right with the God who made us. You've been so kind and gracious to many of us. You've given us another chance over and over again. You are long-suffering and we thank You. But Lord, I know that that day of opportunity can quickly and swiftly go by. And I would pray, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, you'd move on everyone listening, that we would, Father, repent of our sin, that we'd repent of our attitudes toward you. And for those that maybe have found great interest in the things of the Lord, but in fact do not sense they've been born again, Lord, may they see the importance of repentance, confession of sin, and faith in the only one who can set us free. For it was truly the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that washed us as white as snow. He paid for all of our sin. He died the death we should have died. All of our iniquity was laid on Him. And there's no salvation in any other than in that precious name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that right now, You would cause many of us here to repent. To cry out to you and say, God, I need your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that your arms are open wide. Thank you that you love us as you do. And it's in a wonderful name that is above every name that we pray and ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.